the Bible Basics webinar. We're glad that you could join with us again this evening. This is our, our 46th week of the webinar, and we're going to divide our session up into two sections again. We have with us Mike, who is going to speak on the prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. And then in our second half, uh, Don is going to speak to us on the third of our key covenants, which was the promise made to David. And without further ado, I'll turn the class over to Mike for his session. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. And good evening to all of you. I'm glad that you can join us. And this evening during our Finding our, our, Your Way section, as Dan had commented, we're going to be looking at a couple of the prophets of Israel. There were others, but we're going to focus on two characters in particular, that being the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha, which were, in fact, active in the early portion of the northern kingdom when the, the kingdom was divided. And if we look at the next slide, we can see that we've got a timeline that helps us so that we can see what were the, the, the overall span that we're looking at, realizing that following the death of King Solomon, there was a splitting of the, the kingdom into a, a northern and a southern component, which started in the days of Rehoboam. And we can see that the northern kingdom is that bar which is in yellow, and the southern kingdom of Judah uh, was that which was in green. So the northern kingdom would be operating primarily from the territory of Samaria in the north, whereas the southern kingdom would be centered around Jerusalem. And of the 12 tribes that were found in the nation of Israel, 10 of them rallied around the northern kingdom and the remaining two uh, focused on the southern kingdom. And when Don is looking at his section tonight on the covenant made to, to David, he'll be concentrating uh, primarily on that, uh, that family line that operated in the south. But here we can see that we've got these characters of, of Elijah and Elisha that are described for us in the middle of that, uh, just below the yellow bar. And we can see that in the graphic, their ministries, their actions are in fact virtually seamless. They, they, they flow from one to another. And we'll talk about that as we look at them. But they're message was directed towards this the, the people of the north that they might be changed they might be redirected and you can see that they started uh, their their ministry in around uh, BC uh, 868 and for a period of perhaps 70 years they were involved with trying to provide guidance and support to the king of Israel and the subsequent uh, kings following Ahab and also to the people to try to, to, to convert them or to change their minds such that they would focus back on the things of God. So these timelines are always helpful. But it's also important that there's a smaller timeline that uh, is immediately above that yellow bar, which describes those various kings which were operating in the, the area of Damascus, which we can still identify today as the kingdom of Syria. And these were those individuals who were going to be quite the adversary at, throughout the majority of their time to the, the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And they were going to have a significant effect on bringing to pass some of the particular challenges that the people would face as they invaded Israel and 
were active in, in antagonizing them at times. So if you look at the, the next slide, what I've tried to do in the next two slides is to actually summarize the major activities of both the lives of Elijah and Elisha. But Elijah, as we saw from the previous chart, was the, the, the prophet who initiated that 70-year cycle. He's first mentioned for us in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the map on the right tries to define some of the key activities that Elijah was involved in. If we look at the, the small blue circles, which I've tried to use as a, a guide, there's one to the far right of the slide, which identifies uh, Elijah's birthplace. And we notice that he is, in fact, born on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and he would have resided in the, the territory that would have been given to the two and a half tribes that chose to, to set up their household uh, to the east of, of the Jordan. And when we look at the, the challenges that Elijah was going to face throughout his ministry, it really focused on trying to turn the nation back to a true worship of the God of Israel. When the nation separated and, and there was a divide between the southern territory of Judah and that of Israel to the north, there was actually the institution of an alternate form of worship, such that uh, under the, the time of Jeroboam, the people could, could choose to worship God in their own way as part of that northern kingdom and could sever the ties that would require them to go down to Jerusalem, as previously was the case under the, the reign of uh, David and Solomon. And from that time of Jeroboam, there were certain other challenges that took place by later kings, in particular the king Ahab and his queen Jezebel. And there's a helpful section in 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, verses 29 to 34, that I thought I would read for you, because it really summarizes what Elijah was up against. For it says, And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. So he was quite a, a notorious individual. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. So he was the starting point for this northern nation, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So you can see up in the, the, the northern portion of that uh, map where we've got the cities of, of Zidon and Tyre, that are listed for us in that tract of Phoenicia. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So he had very much formalized this alternate form of worship. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So you might say that Elijah was faced with very much uh, an immovable object. He had an individual that had so entrenched this false form of worship that he had led the people astray. And ultimately, even the actions that were done by, by Ahab would have an ongoing negative effect on the, the tribe to the south, that being Judah. <clears throat> now, to try to combat this particular predicament and to stop the people in their tracks and to encourage them to reflect on the choices they were making, he prays for no rain to compel the people 
to turn back to the living God of Israel. Something monumental had to be done to, to paralyze the, the livelihood of the people in the northern kingdom such that they would reflect on what, how had they gotten here? What had they done that had caused this Old Testament curse to be one that was they were going to face? Now, the message of Elijah really takes place early in his ministry, and it was really a conflict. It was a, a, a challenge, a contest between the Lord, whether he would be the God that they should follow, or Baal, who was a false god, a, a god that they had inherited from the, the, the Canaanites who had populated the land while Israel was down in, in the territory of Egypt, and whether they would determine which individual they would follow. Uh, and that was really the, the challenge that was at the core of Elijah's message. Now, Elijah was a prophet, but unlike other prophets, he had the capacity to do certain miracles. And this is something that's interesting to trace if you go through the life of both Elijah and Elisha. <clears throat> it starts with the withholding of rain that contributes to a drought. But there are seven miracles that take place during uh, the, the ministry of Elijah as described for us. And in particular, a number of them are associated with water. The very first and several subsequent miracles are all connected with water. It was the source of life. And its absence meant the removal of life or the hardship of life. And that was what Elijah was active in, in using to try to change the behavior of the people. Well, Elijah also had to learn some very important lessons. Although he was a prophet, although he was given a message by God to share with the people, he had to realize that these miracles, no matter how grand they were, were not going to have a long-lasting effect on converting the hearts and minds of the people, and that that would only take place through instruction, through direct personal teaching, and that that would take time to try to change the attitudes of the people. And that ultimately, despite how bleak might things might look, God would find a way to work with a remnant. There would be those who would be true followers of God, and there would be those that would have to be sought out um, by Elijah and other prophets to try to encourage them in the face of these uh, challenging times. Now, in, in particular, in Elijah's case, we last hear of Elijah in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 12, where he sends a letter to one of the later uh, sons or kings of Israel in which he is trying to further admonish him so that they can uh, be reconnected with the things of God. But uh, the, the extent of Elijah's ministry is summarized on this particular slide. And these uh, slides will be available on our uh, Bible Basics webinar, so you can consult them further and look at the, the maps in more detail. So that's the, the life of Elijah. If we look at the next slide, then we can see how it relates to Elisha. Elisha was uh, an individual who was going to be closely affiliated with Elijah, but he would come after him. He would continue the work of, uh, of Elijah. And he's first mentioned for us in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, where Elijah is directed to go find this individual. He was one of that remnant that God had handpicked to pick up the mantle of Elijah and to continue his work. And we can see that 
in the, the, the case of, of, of Elisha, he was a, an individual who had challenges of his own, that there was continuing to be an ungodly leadership that would continue even after the death of Ahab. Things would not be reversed overnight and that there would be a weakened state in the northern kingdom, which made them not only vulnerable to false worship, but to the marauding advances of the, the Syrian kingdom, who capitalized on the weaknesses and the disorder that uh, was evident within this northern kingdom. But unlike how Elijah's ministry had started, uh, Elisha's starts somewhat differently. Rather than withholding water, here the, the water, which also figures quite extensively in the ministry of Elisha, is now going to be restored right from the very outset of his ministry. He heals the spring waters of Jericho so that there might be health restored to the livestock and land. And this was something that was needed such that the, the, the people could be cared for and they could have their needs addressed such that they could focus their minds and hearts on hearing his message. Now, Elisha's central message was somewhat different. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. The nation had to realize that God hadn't abandoned them. He had saw that there was a remnant there and he was desirous to preserve them, but they had to have faith. They had to believe that God was there as a shield to safeguard his people in the midst of this, uh, the inroads of the Syrian nation. Now, by comparison, the number of miracles performed by Elisha were much greater, more than double that which had been performed by Elijah. And if you were to go through and look at these, and I may look at posting this listing onto the website so that you can do some of your own study afterwards, once again, we have a, a constant or a frequent association with this idea of water. Water of life was something that would figure quite heavily into Elisha's miracles as well. And it showed that there was a, a basic provision that God was providing as he cared for those people in the northern portion of the nation. Now, if we look at the next slide, we can see that although there were contrasts within the two ministries of Elijah and Elisha, there were a number of similarities. This uh, slide helps to tabulate those for us. Both of them were involved in a natural disaster. One pronounced a drought, and in the case of Elisha, he would prophesy of a famine. And you can see how these are color-coded with the, the legend that's at the upper portion of that table on the left. Both provided miraculous food and water. In the case of, of, of Elijah, he was fed by ravens and he would also provide sustenance for, for, for others. Um, and in the case of Elisha, he miraculously feeds the, the, the prophets, uh, the sons of the prophets. He cared for a widow. We can see examples of those in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. He was involved in the raising of dead. And there we can see the, the, the prayers that he offered in the case of Elijah to restore the, 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 the widow's dead son, and in the case of the Shunanite son who had also died due to a, a heat stroke, he also was involved in the case of Elisha in, in restoring him to life. There was an execution of God's judgment. There was the slaughtering of the prophets of Baal, and in the case of Elisha, a calling down of a curse on un, unruly youths 
who had mocked his position as a prophet of God. There was a prophecy for rain. In the case of Elijah, praying that rain would come. And in the case of Elisha, prophesied that water will fill the ditches, ditches in the land and water will flow from the land of Edom. There was a prediction of a monarch's death. He prophesies of the death of Jezebel in the case of Elijah. And in, in Elisha, he prophesies of the murder of a king in 2 Kings 8. And lastly, they both pass through the Jordan. And in this instance, they're joined together. They, they travel across the Jordan eastward. And then with the separation of, a, of a Elijah, Elisha then asks God to, to demonstrate that he has, in fact, been received the mantle of, of Elijah with power and is able to cross again the Jordan River back into the land of Israel. So it's helpful to see the similarities in their ministries. Now, when we look at their last slide in our section tonight, here we can see where these two individuals are actually brought together in one passage of scripture referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some key takeaway points from this. In the case of Elijah, Jesus would say, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And this was a challenge that both individuals would face. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, the first prophet that we looked at tonight, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, city of Zidon, unto a, widow, a woman that was a widow. There was a unique focus of Elijah. Well, let's hold that for a moment and compare what the Lord says about Elisha, where he goes on to continue to say, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And then at the, the final statement that we have on this slide, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And we might stop and wonder, well, what were they so upset about? Well, the individuals that both Elijah and Elisha healed were, in fact, Gentiles, not Jews. These were individuals who were outside of the covenants of promise, outside of the synagogue. And yet Jesus was using them as sterling examples of those who had the faith that the people in Israel did not have. The national faith of Israel was lacking. But the faith of these two important Gentiles was something that was recognized and was esteemed by Christ. And these were the individuals that we have studied this tonight through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. So I'll now turn it over to you and uh, to look at our second portion, Don. Okay, good evening, everyone, again. And uh, thank you for joining us. This evening, we're going to look at the third of a uh, series of three of God's covenants with uh, some faithful individuals in the Old Testament. And, uh, this evening is God's everlasting covenant with David, uh, basically found in 2 Samuel 7. And if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, have them ready, so you might want to follow along a few verses as we go. And uh, so, Dan, if you could put up the timeline for us there, that would help get us located. Uh, who was David? Well, David in the Bible was the son of Jesse. He was the second king of Israel after King Saul. 
and he reigned as king for about 40 years and uh, approximately a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. So that gives us a location of David in, in the timeline compared to Jesus, who we will find out is his promised seed or son. So let's go to the next one, Dan. We're going to start actually in the New Testament. The Acts of the Apostles has, so, has several chapters or contains several chapters that are like summary chapters of Israel's history. In Acts chapter 13, if you've never read it before, it's a gem. It starts up in uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 in verses 15 and 16. We're only going to look at uh, these few verses this evening. In particular, um, verse 21 is talking about Saul, the first king. Verse, uh, verse 22, and when God had removed him, the Saul, he raised up under them David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, and this is important. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to this promise, raised unto Israel a Savior Jesus. So that really summarizes where we're going this evening. So the New, New and Old Testament chime together. We have here a summary of what we're going to look at starting in the Old Testament. There's a number of other good verses here we'll look at a little later. So we go to the next slide there, please. Let's, uh, let's start back in the beginning. Second Samuel chapter seven. And if you have your Bible there, it'd be good to follow through. The verses are on the screen, but uh, it's important to familiarize ourselves with God's word. So second Samuel seven, when God made an everlasting covenant with David, I'd like to read verses one and two. They set the background to what's to transpire in the rest of the chapter. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, It came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest around about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, and the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan kind of indicated, Well, uh, you do what you think is best here. What do you have in mind? And uh, But when God heard about it, there was a bit of a change in plan. King David had a deep desire to build a more permanent structure, a house for the Ark of God. However, by reading this carefully this chapter, we find that God, through the prophet Nathan, responds to David's plan with a promise and a covenant far more detailed and extensive than his servant David could ever have imagined. So that's where we're going to go in the next few slides. This slide, uh, verses 7 and 8 and 9. Give us some of the details. You see them underlined there, and there's going to be a summary on the right-hand side of the important details that we see as we go through this chapter. And there are many. It's not just about a house. David was a shepherd, but now he's a king. He was suitable to be a king. He could lead sheep. He could lead people. Verse 9, God would make David a great name. What does that sound about? That was the same thing said of Abraham, a great name. Let's go to the next slide, if we could, Dan. This is verses 10 and 11. There was a promise here of a more permanent dwelling place for his people Israel in a time when Israel's enemies would not hurt them or harm them anymore. What does that remind you of? I'll just read it back in Genesis chapter 12. It was read last week, part of the three verses in Genesis 12. 
I'll just read verse, I believe it's verse um, three. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Those that cause grief for the nation of Israel would eventually have problems. He would take care of them. In verse 11 here of 2 Samuel 7, the Lord would make David a house. Not David. God would make David a house instead of David a house for God. And this is the key here. Let's go to the next slide, please, Dan. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, we have before us. The Seattle list on the right-hand side is growing. The extensive details is just, just about a house. It's far more than that. David had a plan for this man who was after his own heart. He liked David because of his character. Verse 12, there would be a kingdom for David's seed or son. This son would build the house and rule as king for how long? Forever. We'll find this phrase forever many times in this chapter as you go through. Where would this kingdom take place? Where would the king rule from? That's another topic that's been dealt with. The city is Jerusalem. Not quite the same city as today. There will be big changes. But the king would rule forever from Jerusalem, God's city. In verse 14, I will be his father. God would be this son's father as well as David. Oh boy, this son is pretty important. He has more than one father. Let's go to the next slide if we could. And we continue. Verse 16. David would eventually be alive again. He would see the house built. And the kingdom would have been established before him. And forever again. We have this constant phrase forever. And the rest of the chapter we won't go through. But if you have time, please read verses 19 to, uh, to 29. There's so much here. David realized it wasn't going to happen then. I'll read verse 19. David said, Then this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. It's out from the future. He's called his servant. David is God's servant here. Another example, verse 24 of the same chapter, For thou hast confirmed to thyself, thy people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever. If you go down through the chapter and underline color the phrase forever, you'll see how many times it comes out. So it wasn't to do with the current situation in David's life. Let's go to slide, the next slide, if we could, Dan. It deals with 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is where we find the phrase everlasting covenant in verse 5. In this, in this section, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 5, David expresses his confidence that God would fulfill his promise, although not in David's lifetime, not in David's lifetime. You see the verse, verse 1 there? Now, these are to be the last words of David, David, the son of Jesse. We know that. And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, that's David. He said several things in verses 2, 3, 4, but verse 5. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for God is faithful. For this is all my salvation, all my desire, although he make it not to grow. It wasn't the time. It was going to be in the future. I have a question here. Is this promise to David? Referring to anyone and referred to anywhere else in the Bible? Who is this promised son to David? 
who would be the king forever over Israel. It can't be his natural son, Solomon, because Solomon's dead. He's died. We're talking about forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 states that David would die before this future son would be king. And it indicates in verse 16 that David would also be raised or resurrected so that he would witness the future, this future son's rule as king forever. So this is a long-term plan that God had for David, not just a house. Well, that was going to be nice too, or will be nice. Let's go to the next slide, Dan, if we could. Three verses. Where else did we find it? Well, Luke chapter 1, about the birth of Jesus. Many important verses here. The role of sonship of Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the promised seed, the center of three covenants we've looked at that we have reviewed in the last three weeks. Whose promised son is he and was he? Well, he's the son of Mary, the son of God, the son of David by promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who else? Back in Eden, Eve. The sonship of Jesus is critical. So you see the words of the angel, Gabriel, there to Mary, very clear, whose son he was, the son of the highest. He would be on the throne of his father, David. Great connectors to the Old Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You can see the verses there as concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made the seed of David according to the flesh. But he was also the son of God. And God raised him from the grave. And we were in Acts chapter 13, weren't we? I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 13. If you have your Bibles there, you want to open to Acts chapter 13. There's a couple of key phrases here in this chapter. There's so much here. I wish I could have time to read it all, but we don't. If you go over to Acts chapter 13, verse uh, 32, and we, when we declare unto you glad tidings of that the promise which was made unto the fathers, and it's been fulfilled, it goes down, it's been fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Glad tidings, what's the other word for that, a single word? This is the gospel message. The gospel message in Eden, to Abraham, through David, the gospel message starts in the Old Testament. These promises are part of the gospel message. <clears throat> are there any other places in the Bible where we can connect Jesus to David? Well, there are many. We could look at two Psalms. I ask you to read them if you have time. They're really good Psalms, very descriptive, very encouraging Psalms. Psalm 72 and Psalm 110. But Dan, let's go to the next slide. We have three references here. Here's Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto my servant David. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. That's pretty big stuff. It goes on for a long time. Psalm 132, the Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set up thy throne. There's much more in that psalm. If you read the rest of it, there's much more. In Isaiah 9, it's kind of a, a, a section of Scripture that maybe many know, just like the focus done on the term and the Prince of Peace, the ruler. Where will they rule? Upon David's throne and upon his kingdom to order it. It will be forever, if you look at the whole section, forever again. 
So now, Jan, let's, let's go to the next slide. There's more. These are two slides with Old Testament references. Isaiah 11. And there shall come forth a root out of the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesus, a root and a branch. There's the depiction of the tree there. Um, Jeremiah 23. Again, a reference to the branch. There's three references. There are more in the Old Testament. There's one in Zechariah. He uses the word branch. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. And the last one there, Jeremiah 33, verse 15. The branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. Couldn't be much clearer. The connection here between the Lord Jesus Christ and David. So that's the Old Testament. Now, Dan, let's go on to the next one. It brings in the New Testament. Maybe it was referred to last week. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is the bridge, the connector between the Old and New Testament. Very clear. The whole chapter contains the genealogy or the family. If you've never read it thoroughly, go down through it. You'll find David. You'll find Abraham. It's all there. But verse 1 is the umbrella verse. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That was last week. Very clear. What did the people think of Jesus in Mark chapter 10? Who said this? It was blind Bartimaeus, a blind man. He knew. He had heard. His eyes may have been, his sight may have been gone, but his knowledge was there. What did he say? Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of David, have mercy on, on me. Blind Bartimaeus could see where the rulers around him with sight could not. They would not. Even if Jesus told him, they would not accept him. Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. That's what the people thought. In Acts chapter 2, quite a clear chapter again. It starts in verse 22 and goes to the end of verse 36. It just goes on and on about David. God raised up Christ to sit on David's throne. Couldn't be much clearer. There it is. Well, about the book of Revelation. Oh, no. Are we going there? Yes. Very helpful. What do we find in the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant, the Apostle Paul? What's said there about him? What did Jesus say about himself? Dan, let's go to that slide. There we are. Revelation chapter 5. It's really one of the elders, one of the 24 elders in chapter 4. says something very important in chapter 5. He says, weep not. There's a solution here. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah that connects him to Israel. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Well, who's that? It's Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The focal point throughout the book comes back to Jesus and the consummation of God's plan with the world. Revelation 22, this is Jesus talking. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Jesus says, I am the root. Okay, we saw that before. And the offspring, or the branch, comes from David. And the bright and morning star. Well, uh, everyone, uh, Dan and Mike, what else can we say? 
God's everlasting covenant with David is very clear. It has been partially fulfilled during the mortal life of his promised son, Jesus Christ, and will be completely fulfilled in Jesus in David's presence. I should say completely fulfilled in David's presence when he is resurrected and when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. It'll all come together. We have no doubt about, as Christian offerings about this. The promises are clear. The future is clear. Christ will return, and we believe that to be very, very soon. Okay, Dan, I'll turn it over to you there now, please. Yeah, thank you very much, both uh, Mike and Don, for your succinct presentations this evening. Really appreciate that. We remind everybody that we're back again next Thursday. As we look at a couple other topics, we're going to continue our overview of the Bible, looking at the prophet Isaiah. And then as we pick another theme, certainly related to what we've looked at in the last three weeks, we're going to look at the new covenant that it promises, all of which relate to us. And we're going to look at one that has a special reference to us next week. So we hope you can join us again next week and remind you to check out our webpage and, and look at the resources. Uh, Mike mentioned a new resource that we're going to post up there along with the slides and a link to the video if you'd like to share it with others or watch it again. So thanks again for joining us this evening. Mm -hmm.